problem we have. Cultural relevant Christianity really has caused uh, a lot of confusion and a lot of problems within, I would say, American Christianity, what we would see as a nation. It has caused a lot of problems because it has been turned into, look, nowhere in the Bible, folks, nowhere in the Bible do we see that we are commanded to bring lost people into an assembly of believers so that we can preach the gospel to them. But everywhere throughout the Bible, we see the command for saved people to go out to the lost people, give them the gospel, and then invite them into an assembly of believers. That's the biblical model that you see. Now, I am not saying that to make the point that we shouldn't invite lost people to church. I believe we do. I do. I'm sure you do. We should do that. I'm not saying we are against that. What I'm saying is that Christianity has been so flipped upside down that we have people who are saved, but they've sat in the same spot in their pew for their entire Christian life, and they've never gone out and done anything other than that. And their thinking is, well, if lost people come to church, then the preacher should give the gospel to them. <laughs> and this is by and large why we don't have a large number of churches that are active out in the public arena. Now, it didn't used to be that way. It didn't. But in today's world, that's the way it is. And so what has happened is, by and large, we have Bible illiteracy amongst saved people. Why? Because it's, there's nothing I'd rather do than preach the gospel. But if you're saved and you're coming to church, look, the gospel has always been the emphasis here. If you've been here any length of time, you know that. You know that. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But we have Christians that have come to church their whole lives or most of their saved life. And all they hear is salvation sermon after salvation sermon after salvation sermon and then a tithing sermon. <laughs> Because they're coming to church and they're inviting people that are lost to come into the church. And that's not what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be a people that goes out. Now, why am I saying that? Because in 1 Timothy chapter number 4, in 1 Timothy chapter number 4, which I'll say this one more thought. When you see preach, or you see the word preaching in the Bible, most often the reference is to a public proclamation. Preacher preaching most of the time is reference to save people giving the gospel to a lost person somewhere out in a city or somewhere out in the public area. When you see the word teach or ministering in the Bible, those words are almost always in reference to the gathering of saved people together 
so that they can learn more about the Bible than just what it means to be saved. They actually learn how to live a life as a Christian and how to grow in the Lord. Somebody gets saved, what's the next part? Grow, get discipled, get taught, get exhorted. And that's why we have 1 Timothy 4. And so look at verse number 6. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter number 4. You see this, what it says, if thou put the brethren um, in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister. There it is, that term minister associated with brethren, not lost people. And we are to minister one to another. Um, and it said, you see that in remembrance of these things, if, if for me to be a good minister, we're going to have to review some things because we need to, I need to have me remember the basics as well as compel you to remember the basics. Why? Because too often we get away from the basics. And so that's what a good minister should do. And we don't need this remembering. We don't need a new shiny object every time we come to church. Now, I love meetings. I, I love the camp meetings and the special meetings and the Bible conferences. I love getting a shot in the arm. Do you? I do. I do. I like that. I really do. And we've, we come away from a conference or something like this. We come away on a spiritual high. And look, I need that as much as anybody else needs that. But every church service isn't going to be a shot in the arm where we're on a spiritual high. But every church service should be pointing to the word of God. And you know what a lot of it is? At the very least, you know what some of it is? Just a minister helping you remember something you already know. <laughs> Brother, if you've been saved 50 years, there's probably not a lot I'm going to teach you that's new. <laughs> but I might say something that causes you to remember something that you haven't thought about in 10 years. <laughs> now, there's a part of ministering to each other that does that, and we can't get away from it. Uh, we talked about, look at verse number 10. It says, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. That's us as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's talking about the brethren. Look at verse 11. These things command and teach. Again, it's save people being taught. And you have two things. We talked about this last Thursday, so I'll briefly mention this thought. Both of the commanding and the teaching is necessary. The other thing that cultural relevant Christianity has really hurt us in is that they're okay with the teaching part. They're just not okay with the commanding part. But both have to be there. Teaching is this. The Bible is the word of God. Here's what commanding is. 
here are some specific things that the Bible expects you how to live. We get rid of that application. And that, is, that really has hurt our Christianity. Um, the Bible says we should pray without ceasing. That's teaching. What's commanding? You need to guide your family in prayer. That's the commanding. That's the real life application. Same with evangelism. Same with all of these things that we find in the word of God. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to shake you up a little bit and say, hey, there's some, not only you're being taught the word of God, but God is expecting you to go out and do something with it. And modern Christianity doesn't like that. But there's both, there's both commanding and teaching. Amen. In verse 12. Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation and charity and spirit and faith and purity. Our job, we preached on this verse at another time. So I'm going to mention this thought. Our job is to be an example of, to each other. Do you know how much it blesses my heart personally as a pastor when you show up on a midweek service? Immensely. When you show up for an outreach at a parade? Do you know how much of an example that is for other believers. It's a huge example. You say, Brother Jimmy, that it's midweek service. Yeah, we're here. That's great. You don't understand just how important your example is on being faithful in just little things. It's a huge example. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep doing it. Keep it up. Verse 13, look at this. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Now we're getting into, okay, what are some specifics on how to be an example as a good teacher, as a good minister? Well, the first one, let's look at it. Till I come, what does it say? Give attendance. You want to be a good, good Christian? You want, you want to have a good minister? You know what I've got to do? I've got to have good attendance on my report card. <laughs> you know, I've got to show up. You say, Brother Jim, where do I start in my Christian life? I'm trying to get back into it. I need, to, I, I need to get refocused. Or maybe somebody's a new Christian. They just got saved. They're listening online. What do I do? Show up. <laughs> Give attendance. Start making yourself available to the church services. If you got the number one pick to be on the soccer team, you would be there at every practice. You would be there early. If the coach said kick the ball 50 times a day, you would kick it 50 times a day. Take that same attendance and now apply it to faithfulness to your local church family. Give attendance. Show up. 
Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter number 4. Look at verse number 16. Watch Jesus' example. Luke chapter number 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, Luke 4, 16, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the what? Synagogue. Everybody, where did he go? The what? Synagogue. On the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. <laughs> Jesus, by his example, you know where he was found? At the synagogue. People, I want to be like Jesus. I'm like Jesus. What do you mean you're like Jesus? You don't show up for church. Jesus' example was he had good attendance. He was at the synagogue. And you know what was happening at the synagogue? Reading of what? The scriptures. I love it. People come and and, and, and hear the word of God. But I love it even more when they themselves are going to read it. You hear it read, but you yourself need to be reading it. Come to church with a notebook. Take notes. Write the verses down so you can go back and give attendance to it again. Read it on your own. So when we are in, when, when 1 Timothy 4 talks about, in verse number 13, till I come, give attendance to reading, I will say to you, if you're in a church that is not giving attendance to the reading of the Word of God, if they're not in the Word of God, then that's the wrong church to be in. It is. And God helping me, that's never going to happen here. But if it does, then it's the wrong place for you to be. Because this book must be read. This book must be the final authority. This book is what's going to help us. Not my stories or jokes or any of that. This book, you got to read it and you got to believe it. Now go to Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll look at an application here or another scripture verse here. Nehemiah 8. And verse number one, Nehemiah chapter eight, verse number one, Bible says, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. <laughs> Guess what he was doing? That was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. This man... They're standing in the street in Nehemiah chapter number eight. You got a man in the street. Look at verse number two. It says, and Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. They're hearing with understanding. Do you hear me? Your parents say that. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? They don't. The kids don't hear. They say, "Yeah, mom, I hear you." No, they don't. 
There is a hearing with an understanding. You know what that means? You are attentive. You don't, your mind doesn't check out. Your emotions don't check out. You are attentive to what is being read and you are trying the best you can to understand, to understand. Look at verse three. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and women and those that can understand and the ears of all the people were what? Attentive. attentive. We're what? Attentive. We need to be attentive in our listening. This is a man in the street. It's, it, it's being read in the streets. We're attentive unto the book of the law. Now, you know, they do it every year in Nashville. Um, they'll put something together and they'll read the Bible. It'll be 24 hours, just the Bible being read. And you can even sign up for it. People read 20 minutes. Somebody else comes up and reads in 20 minutes. That's a biblical principle. That's what's happening here in Nehemiah's day. Folks, standing out in the, on, a, on a sidewalk at a street corner is absolutely okay and right to do. Read the Word of God. Preach the Word of God. Give a track out. Hold a sign. Wait for somebody to pass and, and ask them a question. Can I talk to you about Jesus? All of that's out in the public. But here in Nehemiah, the ears are attentive. They haven't emotionally checked out. Look at verse number four. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood. In the Bible, the pulpit is actually what you stand on. Now, we call this the pulpit. Understand that. But biblically speaking, what you step onto is the pulpit. So in Nehemiah's day, he's out in the street. He's reading the book of the law. Are the people hearing and being attentive? You know why? Because Nehemiah did this. He wasn't standing down low. There was a pulpit of wood that was made. And so Nehemiah steps up on that pulpit of wood. And now he's able to get the people to hear a little bit better. <laughs> you ever see the guys uh, uh, that have a little milk crate turned upside down and they stand on it? Well, you know, you get on your soapbox and all that. Where it, when a minister does that out in public... And you can find preachers will do that. You can see that on, on YouTube. Men, men, men will do that. What, where do they get that from? Nehemiah chapter 8. Look, that's okay to do. Why? And, and, and so when the preacher steps up on a pulpit, it's so that the hearers can hear better. Make sense? Now, they've restaged everything in our modern day Christianity. Uh, I'm not against glass or acrylic or a skinny little pulpit. I don't think any, uh, any of that in and of itself is sinful. But the idea behind what we would call the pulpit here, the idea is to hide the preacher and make sure that the word of God is what has the preeminence. So if the preacher is going to step up on the platform, it's not so that he would be seen it's this is designed traditionally to hide the man 
so that the word of God has the focal point. That's the, that's the idea behind it. And that's how we stage, if you will. That's how Bible believers do it. We're not looking to have a little bar stool to sit on and show ourselves off in whatever the trendy fashion codes are. Okay. So that's on, on that. Look at verse five on here. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. He's reading. He's reading. They saw the book and they all stood up. Now, have you ever been in a meeting or in a church where a preacher says, hey, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Where did they get that? Nehemiah 8. <laughs> Nehemiah 8. Now, you, you, if you sit and read the word of God, it's not like you're sinning or doing anything wrong. But there's a there's a level of reverence and respect that the preacher is trying to bring to everyone's attention. And so what he does is he says, I'm going to ask everyone to stand for the reading of God's word. That's, that's a principle in Nehemiah 8. Look at verse number 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. 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 Right. But I, now, and, and what else does it say? With lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. But the people answered what? Twice. Amen. Amen. Let's try that. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen. And so where do you get amen? It's in Nehemiah 8. <laughs> a lot of the things that we do, uh, we may not think about it, but there's a lot that comes out of Nehemiah chapter number 8. And, you know, it's two. You can, you can lift up your hands. You can bow your head. All of that is are ways, gestures of worshiping the Lord. And all of it came because of verse 8. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. See that it starts in the verse read in the book and it ends reading the scriptures must be read. But my job or any man that would be up here teaching and reading the word, we've got to cause people to get it. What's the sense here? What's the understanding here? You know, what is it I'm trying to drill into your skull or vice versa? That's what should be happening. Go to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, verse number 14. Acts 13, 14. But when they departed from Berga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia. And here it is, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. When we talked about, we talked about giving attendance, have good attendance. It's the same idea here. They are finding ways to get to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And verse number 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them saying, ye men and brethren, 
If ye have any word of, what is it? Exhortation. Everybody say that. Exhortation. Exhortation. That ties us right back into that list now in 1 Timothy 4. Give attendance to reading. We talked about that. It's got to be read. And now to exhortation. And so we see here, they're in, in the synagogue, and it says, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. <laughs> in other words, let's hear it. Let's hear it. So we not only need the reading of the law, but we uh, reading uh, the reading of the scriptures, but we need to be an example here. We need the exhortation. First Timothy four, we're, we're talking about it gives three things to give attendance to reading, exhortation and doctrine. We're on the second one an exhortation. It's to incite someone to action for God. That's an exhortation. It's an encouragement. It's advising. It's counseling someone to go on for the Lord. You ever have somebody that's down in the dumps and you sit down with them and what you're trying to do is encourage them to go on for God. I don't want you to quit. Do you want me to quit? I don't want you to stay discouraged. Do you want me to stay discouraged? <laughs> hey, we all need some exhortation at times. We all do. If you're not in the church where you're being exhorted scripturally, you're in the wrong church. Reading stops, exhortation stops. You're going to stop growing. Exhortation is what has led many believers to, to take that change of course and to now go on more fully for the Lord. They're ready to quit. They're ready to hang it up. They were ready to just be good with being saved and going to heaven when they die. But you know what happened? Somebody came along in their life and they exhorted them. Many, many a saved people. Man, the wheel turned because someone cared enough to exhort them. Pilgrim Baptist Church family, come on. We've got to be willing to go the extra mile and exhort somebody that might need it. It could be the difference in them just throwing in the towel or saying, you know what? Yeah, I, I can get back out there. Amen. Go to Acts 13. We are in Acts 13. <laughs> Look at verse number 12. Verse number 12. Next thing is we're going to talk about is, is, is doctrine. Acts chapter 13, by the time we get to verse number 12, it says, Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now, you had the deputy, Bar-Jesus, he wanted to hear the word of God. And then the sorcerer came in and, and kind of squashed the plan. And, and now, at the end of it, he's just astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Look, look might as well just read it. Um, where is he at? Okay, look at verse 6. And when they had gone through the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. 
which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith, Sergius Paulus, that is. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O fool of all subtly and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. Now shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him amidst of a darkness and a darkness. And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Main point I'm trying to get you to see here is we're talking about Example to brethren, it's reading the word, exhorting, but also doctrine. It's something that should astonish us, and it's something we should want to learn. Through Matthew, Mark, Luke, both, all three of those gospel accounts, it talks about how the multitudes, they were just astonished and it talks about Jesus' doctrine. It uses the word doctrine. They were just astonished by it. People say, well, we don't, we're, you know, we're just into really not teaching all that doctrine because that kind of divides people. It's kind of the point of why Jesus came, right? I mean, look, the multitudes were astonished at that. You're in a church ain't teaching doctrine. You're in the wrong church. <laughs> You've got to learn doctrine. In the book of John, Jesus says, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. <laughs> speaking of his divinity and speaking of the fact that, look, <laughs> this is from God Almighty. They were absolutely astonished at it. Now, a lot of them didn't want to believe him and all that, but they put him on a cross. We know that. But. Doctrine was important. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time, but Proverbs 4 says, For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. <clears throat> Acts 2, it talks about how they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Ephesians 4, it warns about being carried away with every wind of doctrine. People can get you sidetracked. Doctrine's important. 1 Timothy 4 is how to conduct yourself and, and, and church and church life and, and being an example to believers. And the way you're an example, it's talking about tonight, is reading, exhorting, and teaching doctrine. We've got to be able to do, do all of that. Go to 1 Timothy 5. Let me show you this. 1 Timothy 5. Verse number 17, Bible says, let the elders, 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. So you got you to gotta actually rule well to even be in the running for double honor. It says, especially they who labor in the word and what? 
doctrine. You got to learn doctrine or you're just going to be thrown about with every wind of doctrine. So what's going to happen in the book of first and second Timothy and Titus, those pastoral epistles, the word doctrine shows up 16 times. I'd say it's pretty important. I'd say it's pretty important. All right, last verse for tonight. Look at verse 14. Uh, Bible says, neglect not the gift that is in thee. Now, you can't lose your gift, but you certainly can neglect it. <laughs> um, you better, if you, you're going to, you have either one or some spiritual gifts. You let them sit idly. Guess what you're doing? You are neglecting what God gave you. Instead, you should be praising God for that gift. <laughs> Do you have the gift of helps? Are you not helping anybody? Well, you're sitting by being idle and you're neglecting what God gave you. Instead, praise the Lord for it. Use it for his glory. The more you use it, the more God will use you to be a blessing to somebody else. And you'll be blessed too. Don't neglect the gifts God gave you. Now, the gifts come from the Holy Spirit. But in this verse, it says, let no man despise thy youth. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. You have a gift from the Holy Spirit, but it's confirmed by the laying on the hands of the presbytery. And here's the idea. God, yeah, God calls, God ordained. But the presbytery here is the one that confirms your calling and your ordination, okay? And you have a body of elders, or that's the presbytery. It's a body of elders or spiritual leaders at the church, and they're going to recognize or they're going to send forth someone to minister. Why is Timothy ministering at Ephesus? Because the Presbytery, those group of elders and spiritual leaders, recognized what was in Timothy. It was evidenced. It was recognized. He was a proven man. And so this laying on the hands is a confirmation that those leaders are saying, yes, God's hand is in this. And that's what that signified. Um. You, you, you look at first Timothy five um, again, go there. This is why in verse number 22, watch what it says. Lay hands suddenly on no man. You know why it says that? Because you got to be careful before you give a public approval of somebody. And this laying on of hands, these leaders are now given a public approval saying, Hey, we, we are putting our connection to, we're saying that this guy is proven. We're saying that God's touch and God's hand is on him. You better not lay hands on no man suddenly. You know what you're going to have to find out? What's going to happen when, when an obstacle gets in front of him? What's going to happen if he gets sick? What's going to happen if somebody's causing trouble? What's going to happen if, 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 if? How's he going to handle it? That's why you got to be careful about laying hands on somebody too quickly. 
You got too many men that are all, what man, they got the right doctrine. They're very proud of their prestigious degree. Uh, they're very proud of the, um, the Bible Institute or college that they graduated from. But you know what? None of that's going to make them the right man. You know what's going to make them the right man? When they're proven. When they're proven. Because you get punched in the gut and it gets you out of the fight, then we know what you're made of. Because the shots are going to come. Shots are going to come. And there's a lot of Christians that just want to get you out of the fight. There may be a lot of Christians that have been trying to get you out of the fight for a while. Guess why I'm here? To exhort you and encourage you and say, you ain't out of the fight. We're going to get you back in the fight. And we're going to allow time to prove things out. So that's this idea of laying on the hands. Now go to Leviticus 3 because I think you'll really like this. Leviticus chapter number 3. I think you'll really like this scripture. It's a really good cross-reference. It's going to really draw out a, a good scriptural point. Leviticus chapter number 3. Look at verse number 1. Leviticus 3, verse number 1. And if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd... Whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Verse 2, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. You see that? They, you see that phrase? They're laying their hand on it. Look at verse, go down to verse number 7. If he offer a lamb for his offering, then shall he offer it before the Lord. And here it is again. He shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle the blood thereof round about upon the altar. That priest laying his hand. We see it again in this sacrifice. Look at verse 13. Go down to that. It says, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of it and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. We see that three times. The priest, what is he doing? He's indicating his union and his connection with that sacrifice. And in Leviticus 3, it says the priest laid his hands on it. And he's showing he's connected to it. How, is that How does that make that applicable to us and what we see in 1 Timothy 4? Those church leaders, they are laying their hand on that man and they're saying, we are in connection with him. We are in union with what he, God's in this and we are sending him out and he is going to be, his life is going to be a sacrifice for you, Lord. That's what it means to send somebody out. In Leviticus 3, they're making a sacrifice and it's all to the Lord. With that, they, and they put their hands on it. It's the same idea, except the spiritual application for us is, man, you get church leaders, they lay their hand on a man, they are saying, we feel good that we are connected with him because he is going to go out and he is going to live his life 
as a sacrifice for the Lord. Everything he does is going to be for the Lord. I mean, some of that might be he might get slaughtered, but but you get you get the idea of that connection there. Your life should be a sacrifice for and to this one time sacrifice. You're living a sacrificial life unto the Lord, holiness unto the Lord. So that's that. So you get a guy who says. We've all you've been most of you've been in church for a good bit. I'm called to preach. People, you know, these men say I'm I'm called to preach. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? If that means you just want to be a lone ranger Christian, no. If that means you got to go do something because you can't get along with anybody else, no. You're not called to preach. I'm called to preach. Okay, then show us something. <laughs> If you haven't been to one outreach and you've been here for five years, don't say you're ready to go preach. You haven't preached to anybody. It's the idea of prove it, show it, live it. And it'll become evidence to everybody. And that's the idea. Then we can be ready to lay hands on on a man to recognize their qualification. We want to feel good. Anytime we support a missionary, it's the same idea. I want to know, you want to know, that that missionary, that missionary family, what did they do before? What was their life like before? Okay, now they're on deputation and they're ready to go out into the field. I want to know they were doing something at their home church. So we're real careful on who we're going to support because we want to know that all the missionaries have been proven. Those, those home churches, their hands been laid on and prayed for them. They sent them out. And we want to know they got, they got the touch of God and they've been, they've been proven men. Look, and, and women, ladies, you got a work to do for the Lord as well. You can play a part. I don't know about you. But there aren't a lot of men that are going out and doing something for God anymore. There's a lot of career preachers that can get a job at a church. I want to be surrounded by men who are wanting to live their life sacrificially under the Lord. We need, we need, we need more of them. It's about men growing and being the example. There isn't any reason why this church can't be full of a half a dozen men that at any time can come up here, read the word, exhort from the word, and teach doctrine from the word. There isn't any reason why at least a half a dozen of men can be raised up over the next year that can do that out in public as well. And in 1 Timothy, there's a proven ground that's going on. 
And man, I just exhort you, let's all, let's all of us step it up, our reading, our exhorting, and our doctrine. We've got to be the example. We've got to be the leaders that God has called us to be.